Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, Upper Room. My name is Nellie, and I'm reading scripture for you today. And today's scripture is from John 2, 1 to 19. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His, my, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then Jews, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. This is the word morning, of the Lord. Church. If you're in junior high, you can head out with Pastor Kate. You guys are uh, going to spend the rest of the service together. All right, well, I want to do, um, do a little word association with you this morning, and I'll give you one of three responses, okay? You can cheer, yay, you can groan, or you can, nah, you know, if you're sort of in the middle, okay? And just, just your gut response. If you're watching a video, I want you to do it too, nice and loud, okay? Spring. Chocolate. Running. Coffee. Country music. It's from the devil, we know. School. Work. Politics. Religion. Yeah. You know, it's funny, right? Religion is one of those words in our culture that has that kind of response. 
the people around you, the people you work with, your own life, you think about. When I say the word, it brings up ideas, images, pictures, experiences, past, conversations. And I would say as a culture, in a sense, we generally don't know what to feel about it, but if there is a prevailing view, it's probably negative. And some of the books written in the last, year, in the last few years certainly would, would sort of express what um, is, is some form of aggressive atheism. Not all atheists are like this, but there, is, there are some who began to write and sort of saying, you know what, all of this is wrong. Christopher Hitchens uh, recently passed away. He was one of those. And uh, he, he, he writes it like this. Religion looks forward to the destruction of the world. Perhaps half aware that its unsupported arguments are not entirely persuasive, and perhaps uneasy about its own greedy accumulation of temporal power and wealth, religion has never ceased to proclaim the apocalypse or the day of judgment. He goes on, Religion comes from the period of human prehistory where nobody had the smallest idea of what was going on. It comes from the bawling and fearful infancy of our species, and is a babyish attempt to meet our inescapable demand for knowledge as well as for comfort, reassurance, and other infantile needs. Today, the least educated of my children knows more about the natural order than any of the founders of religion. Harsh words, and maybe some people would be afraid to say that out loud, but Christopher Hitchens was bold enough to say what many people actually think and feel. And there's a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum of those in your life that say, well, it's boring, it's unnecessary, it's not for me. But then others would move along the spectrum and say, you know what, if actually we look at history or look at people who are the brokers of religion, I think it's greedy, I think it's, it breeds um, the, the hunger for power, the abuse of power. Religion is used to suppress people, to control people, and therefore it's not just boring or irrelevant, it's actually evil. A few years ago, Hosier wrote the song, you know the song, Take Me to Church. You ever listen to the lyrics? It's so interesting what he writes. My lover's got humor. She's the giggle at a funeral. Knows everybody's disapproval. I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, she's the last true mouthpiece. My church, that's her he's talking about, offers no absolutes. She tells me worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. Many in our modern culture said, you know, we don't need religion that love or sex or relationship Meaning in, in that that's the new religion, that's the new reality. Think of the word itself, it actually comes from two words, re-ligar. And the word ligar you might know from the word ligament. And re just means sort of re repeat or to come back to. And the, the word ligar means something that you're bound to or that holds you or holds you together. Now in and of itself, we would say, okay, that's not necessarily a negative word. And I suppose if you think about the heart of religion, well, what is it at its heart, whatever religion it is? It's sort of a desire to, to be connected to the divine, that maybe there would be the hopes of answered questions of purpose, of meaning, of direction, of hope, that people, in a sense, who seek religion seek these things and think, somehow, if I can connect to the higher power or the divine being or whatever that is, that I might be able to receive some of that hope, some of that meaning, some of that purpose somehow. And so there's this idea of returning to or coming back to or this repetitive nature. But isn't it interesting that if you look at that description of what the word religion means, a repeated returning to that which binds you. A lot of people would say, yeah, exactly. It's this repetitive kind of coming back to something that you think you need, but that in the end holds you and constricts you and constrains you. 
For the religious, they are under the power, in a sense, of it. Whatever the holy places you're supposed to go, whatever the holy book is you're supposed to read, whatever the holy things you're supposed to do, or the unholy things you're not supposed to do, whatever the ways you're supposed to give or live, it's this repetitive behavior to that thing, and just tell me what to do, and I'll do it again and again. And some of the irreligious people look at it and go, that's meaningless. That's pointless. Why would I do that? And in fact, why are you letting those people who make the rules of where you should go and what you should do and what you should say, why are you letting them bind you? Because all it's doing is enslaving you. And so there are some who are within it who live under the guilt and the need to go. And if I haven't been or I haven't made my offering or I haven't given or I haven't prayed or I haven't made the pilgrimage or whatever it is or gone to that holy place, I feel guilty. I feel like something's not right. I have to get it right. I have to go and I have to make sure I do this. So there are some who live under that burden, and there are others who say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that because of that. The religious and the irreligious alike look at it and say, ugh, it's this repetitive thing that binds you to itself. At best, it's irrelevant. At worst, it's downright evil. We've been talking as a church about the good news. What is the good news that as Christians we say we have? We said the good news in, in one word is, is Jesus, that Jesus is everything to us. It's like the, the songs we've been singing this morning are about that. But how do you communicate or how do you communicate the good news in a world where people say, that's just religion and religion is empty and it's obsolete and it's evil and it's destructive? You know what I would say the good news is? Jesus said it first. 2,000 years later, we're just catching up. Are you done with religion? Jesus was the one who came to pack it in. The good news of Jesus is that he didn't come to further propagate a certain religion or to start a new one. He came to end it. In Jesus, he says, you do not need religion any longer. And I wonder, as Jesus is present in many of our churches today, he said, 2,000 years ago I said this is over. Why are you still hanging on to it? You know, God had given his people. You might say, well, you know, didn't God sort of give them the Ten Commandments and tell them how to live and whatever? But if you think about actually God's relationship with his people, all of the practices and the tangible symbols that he gave them were something that they could touch and feel and see that would help them interact with him who they could not touch and feel and see. And in a sense, the religious practices that God gave his people as when he began to gather them to himself was so that they would be a pathway to knowing him and hearing him and interacting with him, knowing his love and loving him in return. But they did with it what all human beings do with it. They turned it into religion. And it's very interesting. Some of the criticisms that you and I and maybe the people in the world might have about religion, God himself had them for his people. There's certain sections of scripture where God says, don't lift your hands to me and worship me because there's blood on them. Yeah, you're, you're practicing your Sabbath and you're coming into the temple or the synagogue, but you're mistreating the people who work for you. You are perverting justice, so don't come and lift your hands to me and say that you love me when you're acting like this to the people around. God was calling out the hypocrisy that he saw in his people. Other times he says, you know, you, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's a hypocrisy of religion. It's saying it doesn't matter what you say if inside your heart you have no interest in it or it's corrupt. He was harshest with the leaders of his religion, saying this is not 
a pathway for you anymore. You are trusting in it, and you're not looking to me. And so in the end, they just sort of would try to be more religious, so they would abandon their religion altogether. And it's so interesting that in the Gospel of John, right, the good news of Jesus Christ, in the very first chapter, when he's describing the good news of Jesus coming to us, he says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is a stunning verse. No one has ever seen God. It's almost like up to this point, no one has ever seen God, but. But now. Right in his opening chapter of the biography of Jesus. But now. The one and only Son, who is himself God, and it says, in closest relationship with the Father. Now, some of you that have one of the older translations, it says, who is in the bosom of the Father. It's kind of weird old language. But it's this idea that it's describing this closest of intimate kind of relationship. I heard one pastor say it like this, like in the chest cavity of God is Jesus. And he says, he has come to us, and the one and only Son, who is himself God, has made him known. The word known is the Greek word exegeo, which means he has explained God to us. Everything that, was, that religion attempted to do, right, to explain God to us, John says, actually now Jesus has come to explain God to us. If we want to know who God is, we know Jesus. The revelation of God is not a holy book. It's not a holy place. It's not a bunch of rules. It's not a bunch of descriptions about who God is. It is a person, God himself. God realizing that in a sense religion was at best temporary and at worst a complete misunderstanding, obstruction, that it even becomes sort of, Israel's religion had fed into their ethnocentrism. They were actually not people who wanted other people to know God. They liked their religion for themselves. They were sort of, it just sort of fed their own racism, which is a lot of what we can see religion does today. And God says, that's it, enough. I am sending my son. He is the full explanation of who I am. Isn't that a beautiful verse? What God has done for us. And so it's so interesting. If that's what he says in John chapter 1. How does Jesus go on to explain God to us? You have to read John's gospel. John's gospel is interesting. It's, it reads quite differently than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very similar, follow sort of a very sketched kind of almost chronological narrative, which makes a lot of sense to us in the modern age. We can't think of narrative unless it's chronological. We think, okay, start, beginning, what happened at this time? But ancient literature wasn't even necessarily so concerned with chronology. And John himself actually just says, I want to tell you the story in a different way. And so he begins by saying, Jesus is the full explanation of who God is. And what did Jesus do then right after? And, and think about this, the events that John begins to describe are not necessarily the way they occurred always in succession, but what, look at what John puts in his gospel right after chapter one. Jesus goes to a wedding. He's at a wedding, he's invited there, his mom's there, his disciples are there, and the wine runs out, which is always bad. And, and these are like, they did weddings the way we should do weddings. Like, there's your seven to 10 day affairs. 
which of course would bankrupt every one of us if they, but man, the wedding industry, they would love it, right? Like Bride Magazine, my gosh, like how to throw the best 10-day wedding. Like they would love that. And so the wine runs out. And it's so interesting, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, the wine's out. And he, he says, woman, now don't take that as a disrespectful word. It's, it wasn't, he wasn't saying, but he does say to her, why do you concern me with this? And it's an interesting question because if you think of all of the miracles that Jesus did, you know, raising people from the dead, healing blind people, healing crippled people. It's like, the wine ran out? Okay, too bad. Like, what? Why does Jesus need to do this miracle? And he almost says to her, what is that to me? Like, you know, okay, the wine ran out. They're all sauced anyways. Why do we need, like, you know, they just, just serve them water. They won't know. But she understands. She says, actually, do what he tells you. And John says, Jesus looks. And he sees the jar, six stone jars, holding about 20 to 30 gallons each, big jars, that were used for ceremonial washing. They were religious symbols. They were, it wasn't washing to sort of get the germ off your hands. It was this idea that cleanliness and godliness were very connected and that hand washing was a part of sort of ritual cleanliness. And there was a whole bunch of laws that the Jews had around ceremonial cleanliness, washing your hands and what you did and all of that stuff. And Jesus, it's picture almost, right? John says, God comes, God, Jesus comes to explain God to us. And what does Jesus do? Over in the side here the, at the wedding, wine was the symbol of new life and of joy. And the joy had run out. And here's religion standing at the side with nothing to say. These ceremonial jars that are empty water that kill joy religion, with nothing to offer when the joy in life had run out. And what does Jesus do? Take those. Fill them up. We're not going to wash our hands. We're going to drink new wine. And he takes it to the master of the house, and the master's like, goes to the bridegroom and said, you know what? You know how it works, right? Get the cheaper wine later because no one knows the difference. You've saved the best for last. In this moment, Jesus takes these jars that were set aside for religion and religious ritual and cleansing and says, we are going to repurpose these to bring joy. Not only was the wine good, it was in abundance. It was probably 550 bottles worth that came out of those jars. You see this picture that John's painting? Empty religion, Jesus says, you don't need this anymore. Why? I just, because I asked myself, why this miracle? It sticks out like a sore thumb. The other ones, it doesn't, it's not like he made a huge difference in those people's lives. They all just had a bigger headache the next day, probably. Why this thing? Why does John tell the story like this? Here comes Jesus from the heart of the Father, explaining God to us. And what does God do when he shows up in a place where joy had run out? He brings life. Actually, later on in the other Gospels, Jesus talks about himself and his teaching like new wine. And you know what he says? The new wine's better, but if you've gotten used to the old, you don't like the new. Wow. Right? He was talking to a people that had gotten so used to the way things were that when God himself actually came, they couldn't receive him. They just liked their very carefully constructed religious life. And the new wine comes, and they're like, well, I'm not sure. Isn't that an incredible indictment on what religion has become? It has so bound us that when God himself actually comes, we're not sure whether it's better. 
You might say, well, is that really what John was doing? You know, was, was he telling this story of Jesus coming to render religion obsolete? Well, look at the next part in the chapter. Where does he go next? The contrast is stunning. He leaves a wedding, which is kind of an odd place for him to begin as God begins on the earth, and he goes to where we think he would begin, at the temple. Now, if you read the other gospel accounts, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem at the end of his old journey. He starts in Galilee, ministers for the three years, and lands in Jerusalem. John has it in chapter 2. Why? Did he suddenly go from Galilee to Jerusalem? No, John just said, you know what, I want to tell that story now. Why? Look what he does. He goes into the temple, and it says he went into the temple courts, which was several football fields large. And it was the court of the Gentiles. It was where if you were a non-Jew, you could still come and worship God. But in this court is a whole marketplace. It's like Costco on a Saturday. Except live animals around, you know, and no, none of those great samples. And it says, Jesus looks around. You're going to get the picture of it. Here he is at a wedding. He's doing all the stuff. People, I mean, the servants would have been like, oh my gosh, you've got to come to every wedding. Like, he's the life of the party, whatever. He goes into the temple. And, and he just goes crazy. It says he made, he looked for rope so he could make a whip. So he could beat people out of there kicking over tables, coins going everywhere, animals, it was like an MMA press conference gone bad, you know, like just all of a sudden, the outburst, right in chapter two, right after turning water into wine, Jesus comes. And it says he's, he, um, he let all the animals go. And the animals, what were they doing there? Well, people would come, it was Passover time. So the city would have been almost three times the size of Normus. So just swelling with people everywhere. And people would have come to make sacrifices, and many of them would have traveled, and so they would not have been able to carry their lamb or whatever they were bringing on the way, so they would have to buy animals there. Well, how convenient for the temple. They get to sell animals, probably at a bit of a higher price. It's like the water you buy at a baseball game, right? How is this $18? It's the only game in town. This is what they were doing. And then the temple coin was a currency that was unique. It, it wasn't the currency that the rest of the Jews used. It wasn't the Roman currency. It was something else. So they were changing money. Well, when you can change money, what can you do? You can charge whatever exchange rate you want. And so Jesus comes into this place. And he sees this court that was meant to be for the non-Jews to be able to worship God. And in other passages we know, he particularly is upset about that fact, that the people who weren't the Jewish people were not able to worship God, that in a sense, the Jewish people were saying, we don't care about anyone who's not like us being able to worship God. We need this space to make some money. And Jesus kicks it over and thrashes the place. And then he says something very interesting. You know, the word for temple in Greek is heron, heron. But he says, um, where's this passage? He, say, he doesn't use the word temple when he says, this is my father's house, the Greek word oikos, household. He says, this isn't a temple. It's my father's house. This is a household. It is a place of relationship. And in that moment, it seemed like to me that Jesus is judging religion for the other thing that it does. It doesn't just kill joy. It kills relationship. 
The relationship that was meant to be, that Israel was meant to be actually a blessing to all the nations, that they were meant to grab the other nations and say, come, worship our God. He's not just for us. He's not just interested in one ethnicity or one corner of the world or one skin color. Come, he is a God for all people. And instead, they had said, there's no room actually for you to worship here. We need to make some money. It had killed that relationship. And it was also killing their relationship with God because he says, this place is God's house. It's a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus judges religion for the relationship that it has killed. He says, you don't understand. And, and what's so interesting, this is Passover time. And Jesus, by kicking over the tables, scattering all the coins and letting all the animals out, he took the entire sacrificial system and brought it to a grinding halt in 10 minutes. Shut it down. There was going to be no forgiveness of sins through the sacrificing of animals because you couldn't get animals because they were running all over the place. You couldn't buy the animals because the currency was all mixed up and the money changers were gone. In a sense, he didn't just clear the temple courts. He shut down the whole religious system in 10 minutes. And the religious leaders say to him, what authority do you have to do this? And this is how we know this is what he was doing. He says to them, destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. And they say, you're going to build it in three years, three days? It took seven years to build? Well, you and I know he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. What was he saying? He said, I am the place where heaven touches earth. I am the temple. I am the place where you meet with the living God. Jesus shuts it down. You know what's interesting? John tells this story at the beginning. I mean, if you go through the Gospels, you find over and over and over again Jesus poking religion in the eye. One time he heals a blind man just by touching him. But on the Sabbath day, remember, he spits in the ground and makes mud because making mud was one of the things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. He knows they're watching, so he just loves to rub it in their face. This poor guy's like, you could have just touched me. Why I? And he makes him walk all the way across town to go wash it out so everybody could see that somebody made mud. Another man, a cripple, that he heals. One of them, he doesn't tell to pick up his mat. The one he heals on the Sabbath, he does, because carrying your mat was one of the things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. Jesus says, break it. He would go with his disciples and eating food on the Sabbath. They would say, well, you're not allowed to do that. Why you? They would rub the heads of grain so the chaff would blow away and they'd sort of eat the, the seeds of wheat. They were always calling him on it. And then in the Passover, their most sacred meal, he blasphemes it. He says, this is my body and this is my blood. The Jews were not supposed to drink blood. And that was some of the, what the pagan religions did of animals. And Jesus in that moment is equating this most sacred meal with his life. Of course, they weren't drinking his blood. They were drinking wine. But he said something that to them would have been so sacrilegious. It was like consistently, persistently, all the way through, Jesus is saying, this at best was temporary. At worst, it was twisted and evil and just fed your racism and your self-superiority. And so it is done. Isn't that amazing? 
See, the heart of religion, I heard this explained to me years ago, and I never forgot it. And I've actually used it to explain this to many people because I think many people don't get that this is actually the good news of Jesus, that he, he didn't come to start a new religion, he came to end all religion, that he is the full explanation of everything that every religion looks for, even the Christian religion. Every religion on earth looks for purpose, life, meaning, forgiveness, grace, hope, and Jesus says, I am. See, the heart of religion is do. This is what you do. Here's the holy place. These are the holy things. Here's the holy um, words and actions. And there's a holy mediator, a priest, a rabbi, whatever it is of some kind, someone to go before God. And you know, that's what's so interesting about Israel. That's what they did, right, with their religion. God said, come meet with me. They were quite happy for someone else to go meet with God and just tell them what happened. Just go. We don't want to get too close. The heart of religion is do. These are all the things you need to do. Whatever they are, fill in the blanks across every kind of religion and maybe even the Christian faith that you grew up with and was very much characterized by this. But the heart of Jesus is done. It is done. It's not what you do. It's what I've done. And that beautiful pronouncement on the cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished. What did he mean? Everything. The work of saving, of forgiving, of healing and restoring his mission on earth, religion itself. It's done. Friends, this is good news to explain to a world that is so done with religion as well. Saying this is what Jesus said. You don't need it anymore. It's obsolete. Religion is dead. God himself put an end to it. He replaced religion with himself. I am. Which is why, in the Gospels, the response that is called forth for people who realize this is faith. The word faith. Now, we, we think about the word faith often in connection to religion. Like if someone says, oh, oh, you're a religious person, or they find out I'm a minister or whatever, they're like, oh, you have faith. Faith has become synonymous with sort of vague belief. And for some people, it's like, well, I have faith. Like, in other words, I have this general sense that everything is going to work out okay because there's some higher power up there making sure that it is. And if I have it, it's, sort of, it's kind of like the power of positive thinking. Right? It's like Tony Robbins with a clerical collar. Like, it's, this is kind of like how that works. That's what faith is. Or faith is this idea that, okay, here's, the, here's a bunch of statements of truth, and if I believe them... That's what faith is. Well, my faith is, I believe this, I believe that, I believe this, I believe that. It's a creed or something. But if the full revelation of God is not a creed or a holy book, but a person, then faith is trust. Faith is trust in that person. Faith is a relational word. It means we trust in Jesus. We trust Jesus that what he has done is enough. We trust Jesus that I don't need to earn my way to God, but that God has already given me grace. We trust Jesus that he says, if you come to me, you will have the life that you're looking for, the water of life, the bread of life, that you will actually find the satisfaction that you so look for in every other pursuit you have in life. We trust Jesus that he says, I am the way 
I am the one that will guide you in life. I am the one that leads you to ultimate reality, relationship with the Father. Faith is to trust Jesus. And so, in any relationship, I always say this at weddings often. If you're going to, if I'm going to do your wedding, spoiler alert, this is what I'm going to say. Every relationship needs face-to-face time and side-by-side time. And I would say, like, you know, girls, they just want, they want it all to be face-to-face time. Like, let's sit across from the table, let's talk. And guys tend to be like, hey, let's do something together, side-by-side time. But every relationship needs both. Face-to-face time, the, the intimacy, and the side-by-side time together. For some of you, you may say, well, you know what, I'm just starting out in this whole thing. Well, you just need a first date. You need a first date. You need something to actually build your face-to-face because faith is a relationship with a person. And if God has revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus, then for you to understand your life and your purpose and to find meaning in life is actually to begin to know that person. So for some of you, you need a first date. And I would say, if, if you want to start somewhere, watch the Son of God movie on Netflix. It's such a beautiful picture of the revelation of God. And you get to see some of these stories brought to life. It gives you a picture and say, wow, God, you are amazing. Others of you, you know, and, and if you're in a relationship or you're married or something, you know that sometimes like the rhythms of life just get so busy and you actually need to reinstitute date night or you need to do something fresh in your relationship to say, you know, we're sort of kind of just dealing with the transactions of life and here going here and who's picking up here and what's happening next and whatever. And sometimes in our relationship with Jesus, it gets to that. Oh, Jesus, can you help me today? I need this kind of thing. Oh, here we are. I'm here on Sunday. Boom, off I go. And it's like we're missing the intimacy, the encounter with the living God. And some of you may just need to do something new then in your relationship. I may say, I've, I've got to the point in my life, just because given our life stage, if I want anything new in my life, if I want to exercise more, if I want to pray more, I just got to get up earlier. And I hate that. But some of you say, you know what? I just need that face-to-face time, and I'm not getting it during the rest of the day. So I'm going to get up earlier. And you're, you're not going to do it because God will love you more, because that's the heart of religion. Oh, I should do this. You're going to say, God, I want to love you more. I want to know you more. You have everything for me. I feel like I'm missing out. I'm not getting enough. I get a thimble full every day and you have living water. I need more. And you say, okay, that, that's it. That's why you reinstitute date night in any relationship because you want more. You know you need more. Some of you, it may be a podcast thing that you need to capture in the car. And if you're like, where do I start? Come talk to me. We have access to some of the best spirit-inspired, beautiful preaching in the world now on the internet. Get it in you. The things of Jesus being talked into your ears and your heart. Our home group seasons are winding up, and so maybe over the summertime you just say, I, I got to make sure I spend some time with people that I can talk with Jesus about. Another person in this church, I just need to talk about what's going on in my faith. Or maybe you say, you know what, that person, they seem to have a really vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus. I just want to spend time with them. I want to get around them. I want to get them to pray for me. So maybe you want to do that. We also need side-by-side time. So I wanted to do that actually this morning. Because not only do we have relationship with Jesus, but he invites us in to do life with him. That the sum total of our relationship is not this hour on Sunday or the time we spend reading our Bible or praying, but that it is a whole life. That's why Jesus went to a wedding and the temple. He was in the synagogue, and he was in people's houses. He was in the market, in the city streets, in a fishing boat, which was a place of work. He was everywhere. And you and I, I don't think, realize enough 
how much Jesus wants to enter into the lives we live, where we are. So I want you to just use your imaginations with me this morning. And if you wouldn't mind doing this, if you're watching this on video as well, just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to picture, maybe there's a relationship in your life that's really difficult, it's strained. And so maybe you're, you're going to picture, if it's someone in your home, maybe you're going to picture your kitchen. If it's someone in your work, maybe you're going to picture your workplace. Maybe you're picturing standing on, on the porch in your street or outside the doors of your condo. It's the place where you are. I want you to picture the faces of the people that you come across, whether you're on your street or in your work or in your home. Maybe there's one place in particular that you're kind of zoning in on. Just, just pick that place. Now I want you to picture Jesus standing beside you. He sees what you see. He knows the difficulty of the situation you're in. He knows how complex that relationship is. He knows how challenging that work environment can be. I want you to hear him saying to you, I was here first. I know this place. I know these people. You're not alone. I actually want to do something here. Do you want to join me? I just pray that that picture of Jesus with you in the middle of the life that you live. Would breathe life into the hard and dark and difficult places where religion can't go, but Jesus can. Jesus, we thank you that you promised us your very last words. I am with you always that you gave us your Holy Spirit that would be your presence, your life, your words. Not a dead religion, but a life-giving spirit. And so fill us with your spirit. Bless us with the experience of knowing. Knowing you face to face, but also experiencing you in our lives, side by side, as we look out at the world to which you have sent us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I just want to give you a blessing this morning. As you are sent out into the world where you are, the places where you are, with the good news of Jesus, I want to bless you with two things. One is strength. The scriptures say that Jesus is the cornerstone and in him the whole building is held together. So I just want to bless you with an experience of Jesus just holding you, saying, I got you, I've got this. Whatever it is that is in front of you. But I also want to bless you with presence. 
for some of you, I just want to pronounce over you that, that the walls into which you have placed Jesus, like he's, I can only encounter him here, I can only encounter him there, but he's not going with me into this thing or into this relationship where you have not felt his presence. I just want to pronounce that those walls are broken. Whatever was holding him back, where religion cannot go, Jesus is always, and he is ahead of you. He's also beside you. He's behind you. He's with you. So I want to bless you with strength, but also presence that you would feel the presence of Jesus with you. Amen. Would you receive that? Thanks so much for coming. Just have a seat for a couple of quick announcements.